0: The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Good
1: morning. If you could open your Bible to Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free From the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit. Who lives in you? This is the word of the Lord.
0: So we're in Romans chapter eight. We spent the last few weeks setting the context for this chapter. Now we're going to dig in these first few verses. It was eight years ago, my son Jack and I had this wonderful opportunity to head to Juarez, Mexico, and and work with uh, uh, some local churches there who were providing Christmas gifts for for the kids in their area. It was one of those experiences we'll never forget. Particularly the day where we left the city and we headed out to one of the villages. And we discovered people there living in poverty, which I had never seen before. And it was hard to describe. Just homes made of dirt and mud, very few possessions, many of them not having a change of clothes. The church that we were serving along with had relationships there. So when they arrived, everyone gathered together into this field and there the the Mexican pastor he he shared the gospel, he talked about what the real meaning of Christmas was, and then when he when he finished talking, he had all the children line up behind a van and once we were, they were in the line behind the van, we opened the van doors, and we had the privilege, Jack and I and a few others with us to take out these Christmas gifts and give them to to each one of the kids. These bags had. These Christmas gifts had things like necessities, you know, soap and washcloths and toothpaste and toothbrushes, pads and pencils and things like that. But it also had sort of specially chosen gifts for the kids uh, their age. So I remember just still, it's just indelibly imprinted on my mind the the faces of the kids as for as they received for what was for some of them, the first gift or the first new thing they'd ever gotten in their lives, some of the older boys were given soccer balls. And that was, it was just so much fun to watch because you could almost see it on their faces. Though I don't speak Spanish, they didn't speak English. You could almost see it on their faces as they, they were just coming to grips with the fact that this was theirs, right? They're, they're holding the soccer ball and you could see there's almost a sense of they're expecting to have to return it. And it's, it's dawning upon them that they're going to leave with the soccer ball. You know, the joy on the faces of those children as they, as they held that soccer ball as they opened out those gifts, it's something I'll never forget. I was thinking about that this week as I was reading Romans 8, because for Christians, Romans 8 is sort of like opening up that bag of gifts. It's a chapter that it's just one gift after another that God gives to his people, and it highlights just all of these blessings for those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you've read through Romans 8 and prepared with us for this time, did you notice that in this entire chapter, there's not one single command, not one command. This does not focus, this chapter does not focus on what we do for God, but on what God does for us. Its concern is to recount his blessings, not to reform our behavior. Now, one of those gifts, which is mentioned 19 times in chapter 8, is the Holy Spirit. God sends his spirit to live in his people. I mean, what a remarkable thing this is. So let us not just keep our sort of traditional Christian hats on where we we just say, yeah, that's great. But let's think about this for just a second. What a remarkable thing it is that the God of the universe, who is present everywhere, somehow uniquely dwells in the life of each one of his people through his spirit. That God sends a, a part of him to live inside of you. Like we should... Marvel, and we should rejoice at all that God has given us in his spirit. So in these first 11 verses, I want to point out three ways that the dwelling spirit of God blesses us as his people. Now, as we consider them together this morning, our hearts should be moved to gratitude first, to worship at the kindness our Father has shown to us. So the first blessing of the spirit is that the spirit frees us. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, now this is based upon all we talked about last two weeks. We are sinners who deserve nothing but condemnation, but God, in his grace, through Jesus Christ, has freed us. He has delivered us. So therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh god did he condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit so this passage begins with the wonderful news that all condemnation has been forever removed through Jesus Christ Of course, we will only understand how wonderful this news is if we understand what it means, how awful it is to be condemned. I want you to listen to what one author described our condemnation. To be condemned is a fearful thing. It means to be declared unworthy or even evil, to be judged and declared guilty. Condemnation is an expression of the strongest disapproval. It's not something any of us would want from anyone. Especially God. Our sin condemned us before God, but because of Jesus, the condemnation has been forever removed. We sing the lyrics of Jesus paid it all from time to time. And those lyrics reflect this truth. He paid it all. Every single sin, past, present, future. For those who belong to him, there is not now, nor will there ever be condemnation. And though Jesus paid for all of our sin, we see in verse 2, notice that the Spirit is the one who applies this principle or this law of life in Christ to us. I think it can help if we picture it this way. Because of our sin, we received a sentence of death. This is what we talked about two weeks ago, right? For all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all stand guilty before God, the great judge of the universe. Locked away in a prison, there we await this moment when we will be executed for our crimes, for our treason against the Creator. Somewhere away from that prison, Jesus entered a courtroom, and there he stood before the judge, and he said, Yes, they are guilty, but I will take their punishment. And so the judge, he accepts Jesus' offering, the sin offering, and it says he declares us not guilty. Verse 3 says, because of Jesus offering in our place, the judge is able to clear our record. He commands us to be set free. And at that very moment, the judge makes that declaration. The Holy Spirit enters the prison and he escorts us out. And if anyone tries to stop him on the way out, he holds up this piece of paper. And he says, the judge has issued a decree and this new order, this new law, it trumps the old one. That old law which says you are guilty because of your sin, this new law, it invalidates that. That one no longer exists. In fact, the Holy Spirit tears up that old one and he marches us out of the prison holding the new order, the new verdict. You see, we walk out of that prison led by the Spirit and we hear the doors shut behind us. They seal. We can never be taken back. We are free from condemnation. Now, there are times we might feel like this this can't be true, or this was some sort of trick, or this was a mistake. But verse 3 assures us, no, no, this this is accurate. This is true. This was dutifully purchased by Jesus. What we were unable to do, verse 3 says, because we cannot obey God's law, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of human flesh as a sin offering. I really like what R.C. Sproul wrote about verse 3. He said, there, that verse, in a nutshell, is the gospel. What our morality can never achieve, God can achieve. What our behavior and performance are incapable of attaining, God can attain for us. That is the gospel. We cannot, he can. It is that simple. It's that simple. Jesus died in our place. So our sentence would be overturned, and the Spirit applied it to us by walking us out of the prison doors and leading us into a new life of freedom. But I want you to notice, look at verse 4. that The Spirit doesn't simply free us from the verdict. He also frees us from the bondage of sin. He shows us that the sin which so ordered our lives when we were behind the prison walls, this is powerless out in the real world. You see, when you're in the prison, there are all these rules, all these restrictions, all these things you can and can't do. And the Spirit says, no, no, no. Now, it's different. It's different out here. Verse 4 says that Jesus took our place and the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us. The law of God has been fulfilled in us. Here's what this means. We don't exit the prison As an ex-convict, with our, our record hanging over our head, always having to check the box, yes, when asked if we committed a crime. It says we exit the walls of the prison with this perfectly clean record. We are an upstanding citizen. Like we, through Christ, have fulfilled all of the requirements of God's law. I think this should impact us in two ways. First, it should motivate us to live righteous lives. This should motivate us to live righteous lives. Jesus saves us from our sin. The Spirit frees us from bondage to sin, and he walks with us so that we'll gladly and joyfully do what God wants us to do. The love and grace of the Father, Son, and Spirit should empower us to choose righteousness in a way that fear of retribution never could. Let me give you an example. Let's say my wife and I go out of town on a Friday night, and I leave very explicit instructions with my sons, do not throw a party while we're gone. Okay, It's one command, it's very clear, do not throw a party while we're gone. We return the next day and we find out they obeyed. They did not throw a party, and I I am pleased by that. But then I hear why they obeyed, and here's why they obeyed. They obeyed because they were terrified what would happen to them if they threw a party. Now, am I pleased they obeyed? Sure. But I'm a little disappointed. Maybe not just in them. Maybe it's in me, but I'm a little disappointed that the only reason they obeyed was out of fear. You see, I'd much rather they obey out of love. Like, we love our parents, We want to please them. We want to do what they want us to do. And so out of love for them, we're going to choose not to do this. We're going to choose to obey. Because I know this and you know this. That love is a far greater and far more lasting motivation for obedience than fear of punishment. So brothers and sisters, let me urge you to reflect upon the love of God for you that he sent his son. In the likeness of sinful flesh. As a sin offering. He did that for you. Then he sent his spirit to live inside of you. To free you from the ongoing bondage of sin. He took your punishment. So that you could have a clean record. Reflect upon the love of God for you. And allow it. To motivate you to say no to temptation. Let his love. Compel you to live righteously. Second. It should protect us from feelings of shame and unworthiness. It should protect us from feelings of shame and unworthiness. Do you realize that for the Christian, ongoing shame for past sin is a lie? I want to say that one more time because I think this is significant. Ongoing shame for past sin is a lie. Don't believe it. In fact, a need to continue to feel guilty over past forgiven sin is a subtle way of aiding Jesus in our salvation. It's, it's as if we think, it's Jesus' part to forgive, but it's my part to feel bad. Listen, we, we confess our sin. We repent of our sin. But but wallowing in these sort of ongoing feelings of self-recrimination comes from a failure to truly believe that God is gracious. You know, as Bible-believing Christians, we reject any and all forms of penance. We in no way pay for our sin, not through good works or through bad feelings. Now, I, I, I want you to hear me. I'm not in any way suggesting we take sin lightly. But I'm also suggesting that we not take grace lightly or take forgiveness lightly. We don't take sin lightly because Jesus died for our sin. We don't take grace lightly because, listen, Jesus died for our sin. Is that not enough? Is the death of Jesus for our sin not enough? And so we've got to continue to feel bad long after it's forgiven. We've got to be paralyzed by what we did in the past because somehow the death of Jesus is insufficient. Is it? Is it really? Can we not trust him to forgive? Do you need to add to his death your feelings, your ongoing feelings of guilt and shame? You know, one of the outcomes of holding on to guilt and shame even after we're forgiving, is that we find it hard to forgive others. You see, because we struggle to accept being forgiven, we struggle to forgive those who sin against us. We subconsciously want them to prove that they're really sorry. And so we withhold forgiveness until we think they've demonstrated sufficient remorse. Oh, Listen, true forgiveness is free. And it's freeing. It's free. It's not earned by feeling bad enough. There's not some meter that sits in front of God that measures how bad you feel. And when it reaches a certain line, then God says, now I'll forgive them. It is free. It's free for us. Jesus died for it. And it is freeing. It frees both the one who sinned and the one who sinned against. And so this relationship can be restored. So the first blessing of the spirit is that he frees us the second blessing the spirit transforms us the spirit not only walks with us verse four but he dwells in us and he transforms us from the inside out so as i read verses five through nine i want you to pay attention to something pay attention to how the spirit transforms our thinking verse five for those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit, have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it's unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you Christian, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Tim Keller correctly says that whatever you have set your mind on shapes your lifestyle and character. Whatever you have set your mind on shapes your lifestyle and character. So what? what is your mindset on? What is shaping your character? your values, your priorities? What do you meditate on? And I don't mean by that some sort of official meditation. I mean, just where does your mind go? See, the spirit indwells us to change not only how we think, but what we think about. A good way to determine what we think about is to consider our goals and ambitions. What is it you're trying to accomplish with your day? Your year, your life. What do you have an appetite for? Where does your mind go when it wanders off? Spirit changes what we think about, what captures our attention and what feeds our appetite. Now, does this mean, is this what these verses are saying? That Christians, they only sit around and think about theology every day. Like, so if you see a faithful Christian, what they're doing is they're sitting in a chair and they're just staring off the distance, thinking about some deep theological truth. Sometimes that may happen, but I don't think that the picture it's it's giving here. It's saying that we think about what the Spirit directs our attention to, not what the culture around us directs our attention to. Now, in this passage, when we see the word flesh, don't think about your body, okay? Think about a a, a way of viewing the world, the way of viewing your life that centers on self, on getting what you want when you want it. This is the predominant mindset of every human being apart from Jesus Christ, and it's what our culture feeds us on a day-to-day basis. It's about you. You do you. You see, the mindset of the flesh. I think sometimes we think it's just sort of this obvious, flagrantly flagrantly immoral thinking. But it can be very moral. It can even be church-going thinking. But it's thinking that opposes God's rule in your life over all of your life. The mindset of the flesh is the inability to see yourself as subject to God at all times in every area of your life. It's to live as if God is not watching everything you do or everything you think. So this passage, it shows us this contrast between how the Spirit transforms the Christian mindset with how the world shapes the non-Christian mindset. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to see how the Spirit does a number of things. The Spirit assures us that we belong to God. We're children of His. We've been adopted by Him. We're loved by Him. We're welcome to come to God at all times. None of this, the Spirit tells us, is because we've earned it. It's all because of grace. Okay, so that's the mindset of the Spirit. None of it is because we earn it. All of it is because of grace. We are loved, welcomed, adopted by the Father. Oh, that is so opposite of the earthly mindset, right? Which tells us what? You have got to earn it. You've got to do it. You've got to figure it out. You've got to make a name for yourself. You've got to secure your future. You've got to, you've got to do stuff to earn being loved. You have to work harder. You've got to run faster to measure up. The, the earthly mindset tells us that everything is on your shoulders. You'll only be safe and secure if you make it happen. Listen, these two ways of thinking, that it's all about the grace of God demonstrated, By the love of Christ, adopting me, loving me, welcoming versus it's all about me and doing what I need to do, accomplishing what I need to do, doing what I think is best. These two mindsets drastically, they lead to drastically different choices in lives. Verse 6 says this, one of these ways of thinking leads to chaos and destruction and one leads to peace and flourishing. Listen, we know this is true. I mean, we know this is true. Let me ask you a question. When has selfish, self-centered thinking on your part produced genuine peace in your life? Name once. I bet you can't. I bet you can't look and say like, that one time I was really selfish. Whew, everything, that just made my life better. In fact, I bet you can think of a thousand times without even working hard of the opposite being true. Almost every challenge, almost every difficulty you've had with people, relationships, your own soul comes from selfishness, self-centered thinking, pursuing what you want, what you desire, what you think is best, instead of what the Spirit of God leads you to. You see, all this type of thinking ever does is lead to chaos and frustration. One writer said, to allow the things of the world completely to dominate life is self-extinction. It is spiritual suicide. He goes on to say, By living in a man who's making himself totally unfit to ever stand in the presence of God, he is hostile to him, resentful of his law and his control. God is not his friend, but his enemy, and no man ever won the last battle against him. Okay, listen, the battlefield of your mind has no neutral territory. I think somehow that's, that's how we think. There's like really wicked, evil things I'm trying not to do. Sometimes I really think about good things, but most of the time I'm sort of in neutral. There's no neutral. Did you see a third option in these verses? There's no third option. Our minds are either shaped by the Spirit and slowly being brought into line with God's thinkings and God's values, or our minds are being controlled by selfish thinking and stand directly opposed to what God desires. That's it. Two options. Verse 7 says that that type of thinking, that fleshly thinking, is hostile to God. Verse 8 says the person thinking this way cannot please God. Okay, let me help you understand this. This does not mean that everything a non-Christian does is evil and immoral, but it does mean that even their moral acts don't please God because they don't come from a desire to do God's will. For instance, every soldier who wore a Nazi uniform was not a moral retrobate reprobate. Some of them were very moral. Some of them were good neighbors and kind people, but because they put on that uniform, even their morality was tainted by their allegiance to Hitler, their obedience to his orders. And this is what's saying, so it is with everyone who submits or does not submit to God. So I want you to say this. If you're not a Christian, friend, here's what the Bible is saying to you. And it's saying this out of love. It's being honest with you. The world around you not being honest with you, the Bible is being honest with you. It says this, that your thinking is hostile to God. Now, you may say, I don't feel hostile to God, but this is what the Bible is saying, that you're opposed to him, that you're living for yourself, for what you think is wise and not what God says. You are willfully choosing to reject his commands, and you still remain under condemnation. Let me just say to you, only Jesus can free you from condemnation. Not your effort, not your choices, only Jesus And it comes only through faith in Him. The good news for the Christian, verse 9 tells us, is that we belong to God. And so we have in us, as those who belong to God, we have the Holy Spirit, and he's constantly working to transform how we think and how our thinking then spills out in our, in our motivations, our decisions, our priorities, our affections, our actions. The, the Spirit, it says, this is what God says, the Spirit has moved inside of us and he's begun the renovation. You've watched HGTV, I know you all have at some point he's moved in and he's begun the renovation on the inside, from the inside out. And he started in the very center how you think. And he's tearing down that moldy, decrepit thinking that was in place. And brick by brick, he's pulling down stud by stud, he's replacing it. And he's beginning to change how you think, your mindset. And listen, this takes time. This takes time. It's not a 30-minute program, right? It's a lifelong one. But he's relentless. The spirit is relentless and he will not stop. Here is God's commitment to his people. The spirit will not stop until we are completely renovated. Until we are a healthy, beautiful structure for him to dwell in. So the spirit frees us. He transforms us. And third, finally, the spirit resurrects us. Verse 10. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life. Because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Okay, apart from Christ, we're dead in sin. But it says the spirit enters. He resurrects our souls. He makes us alive to God. We can relate to him. We can know him. We can talk to him. We can listen to him. All because the spirit has taken us who were dead and brought us to life it says though he started this resurrection process internally but because he raised Jesus from the dead we know that it won't stop internally that one day he will raise us completely from the dead new life complete but i want you to think about this that right at this very moment every christian has resurrection power in us right now every christian I want you to hear this. In a different letter, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this. He said that when he prays for Christians, he prays that they will have their eyes open to the power at work in them. Do you hear that? He doesn't say that they'll have power at work in them. He says resurrection power is at work in the Christians, and I'm praying that they'll see it. They'll see it. Their eyes will be open to it. In other words, we're blind to the power in us through the Spirit. Here's what he says, Ephesians 1 verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know what? What, do we, what are you praying that our eyes will see? The hope of your calling, the wealth of the glorious inheritance you have as a saint, and listen to this, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength, which he demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what this means practically for you, Christian. The temptation that seems so strong is no match for resurrection power. The habits of sin that are so deeply engraved in your behavior are no match for resurrection power. The relationship that seems beyond hope is not broken so badly that resurrection power cannot restore it. You never face a situation where you have to sin. The spirit has brought you to life and he empowers you with resurrection life far more powerful than your sin. Like what might happen if each one of us Church, what might happen if each one of us yielded to the resurrection power that's actually in us through the Spirit each day? As if we prayed this prayer, not only for each other, but for ourselves. Oh God, today, open the eyes of my heart, enlighten my my vision so that I can see the power of the Spirit at work in me. What if you trusted that the power at work in you is greater than the power at work against you? Because the Spirit resurrects us, we can say no to sin and we can say yes to living righteously. We can also face death in a way that is foreign to those who do not know Christ. As one of your pastors, I realize that one of my jobs, maybe one of my main jobs, is to prepare you to die. And life in the spirit is what prepares us to die. It doesn't make us morbid. Listen, I'm I'm not being morbid here. I'm simply being realistic. Everyone dies. We don't talk about it, but it's true. Everyone dies, but most die unprepared. As Christians, we can die prepared for what awaits us. I was talking with a Christian brother this week who works as a financial advisor, and he told me, That due to the pandemic over the last year and a half, that people's priorities are changing, he said, from basically accumulating more stuff to having experiences. Going places, spending time with family, doing things like that. It's interesting that death has a way of shaping priorities. But brothers and sisters, we should go a step beyond that. If death shapes priorities, shouldn't resurrection shape them even more? I mean, we will live again. Shouldn't that change all of our priorities? Jesus thinks so. He said to his disciples that they should give to those in need without expecting any return. And he's, here's why. He says, because you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Resurrection changes everything. You don't need anything back. Just give it to people in need. The apostle Paul thought so. After this wonderful section in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, he says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be steadfast. In other words, don't give up. Be unmovable. Always abound in the labor for for the Lord. Work hard. Stand firm. Why? Because you know your labor is not in vain. How do we know it's not in vain? He just told us the resurrection. See, confidence in the resurrection changes our priorities. As Christians, we shouldn't just have one-year goals and ten-year goals. We should have a hundred-year goals and a thousand-year goals because we see beyond, through the Spirit, we see beyond the horizon to the city that is to come. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that assures us of what's to come and that assurance changes both how we live and how we die. Robert Bruce was sentenced to die for preaching the gospel. This was 1631. That morning, he was going to be executed. He got up and his daughter cooked him some eggs for breakfast. And they tasted so good, he was going to ask for some more. But instead, he said to her, I had breakfast with you this morning. I will have supper with Jesus tonight. Come on, that's not normal, is it? But it should be for the Christian. That should be normal. I'll have dinner with Jesus tonight should be our confident hope that changes everything. Okay. So how do you know someone loves you? How do you know someone loves you? I'm guessing it comes down primarily to three things. Right? What they say to you. Hopefully they say they love you. What they sacrifice for you, right? They, they give things that matter. To them, maybe it's their time, maybe it's gifts, whatever they what they sacrifice for you, and then the time they spend with you. And if one of those three things are missing, right? They never said they loved you, they never gave anything of value to you, they never spending time with you. You would probably say, "I don't really know if they love me." Christian, do you know how much God loves you? Do you? I don't think we do, which is why in another place the Apostle Paul prays that we will understand comprehend the width and the depth and the height and the breadth of God's love for us. We don't know how much God loves you, us. But listen, he tells you over and over in his word. We will come at the end of this chapter to some of those beautiful words that tell you how much God loves you. He has sacrificed everything for you, right? He offered his son in your place and he has sent his spirit to dwell with you. God wants you to to be in his presence every day, every hour, every minute. You are loved, and the Spirit is sent to assure you of it. So this week, rest and rejoice in his love. Listen to his Spirit. Set your mind on what's true, not what you're being fed around you. And finally, let the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, fill you with power, and shape your priorities. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift of your spirit. I have not done justice in any way to the gift this is. What a truth that you have sent your spirit to live in us, help us to see it. For every Christian sitting here, I pray that this week that there will be a there will be an intentional yielding to the Spirit an intentional reliance upon the power of the Spirit. Let us actually see these things. So I pray, like the Apostle Paul, that you will open the eyes of our heart, that we will see the power at work in us, the hope, the inheritance. We will see all of this. And that seeing it, we will comprehend the the immeasurable love that you have for us, demonstrated through your Son, Jesus. Father, let us see what we have trouble seeing, and may it shape everything we think about this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thank you for
0: listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina.
1: Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more
0: sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.